Hi again, everybody. Welcome into another edition of The Lab Epstein Hitting Podcast, episode 145, breaking down the swing of St. Louis Cardinals all-star first baseman Paul Goldschmidt, Mechanical Breakdown Series Volume 2. So let me bring in professional evaluator, successful business owner, my former coach, current day renowned coach, friend and co-host, Jake Epstein. Howdy, howdy. Ready to do this, Jimmy? I'm ready. Cardinals first baseman Paul Goldschmidt is the centerpiece of yeah. today's show. Last week, Ep, um, you mentioned how the timing is on point in breaking down Goldschmidt because, what was it, in 2021, you said if we would have done this two years ago, then some of the things that he was doing in his swing you wouldn't have been as receptive to, but now, a couple of years later in 2023, which by the way, last year hit over 300, this year hitting close to 300 on bases, relatively high, OPS is relatively high. So what are some of the things, let's just go right into this, because you mentioned last week, what are some of the things that you didn't like in a swing from a couple of years ago that you like now and that we're going to touch on today? You know, I don't know if there's a, really a big difference. He just, he struggled a lot. I, I think it was two years ago. And then it really struggled in the playoffs a lot a couple of years ago. And he's funky. Like he doesn't line up with he doesn't line up with most major league hitters. Like this guy is a special in terms of uh strength, athleticism, vision, and adjustability. He's a guy that I, I'm gonna show you two sweet I went through like probably ten or so hits, and eight of them were home runs that I found online over the you know, the past few months, right, of the season, he is all over the place. Like, he's hitting, you know, he hits breaking balls really well. He hits breaking balls down really well. Um, and, and we'll be able to look at that. He also can kind of adjust to higher fastballs somehow, which is amazing, whether maybe maybe he anticipates them. But it's not something on a fly that we usually do where we can handle 96 and then be able to handle, like, 84 down in the zone. So I don't know if he's like a prolific anticipator. If he's a big play, he probably is really smart, like Manny Ramirez and Bonds were smart and pitches to look for. But, you know, you wouldn't really teach this swing to to a to a ten year old, to an eleven year old. Like he kind of bars his arm. He stands really far away from the plate. He'll pull balls that are outside, even though he's super far away from the plate. He does some things really well. He's got great hands, and they're very quiet through contact. Like he's not flippy. His forearms are good. Elbows are good, that kind of stuff. But it's not something like, okay, Junior, you want to learn how to play baseball. Like We're going to build a swing from scratch. This is a this is a guy's swing. This is like uh, Lee Trevino um, as a golfer or Arnold Palmer as a golfer, like taught themselves, found a way to you know, hit the middle of the club face all the time and, and work the ball different ways. And that's kind of what Goldie looks like. He just he finds barrels. And he finds barrels from really different positions um, in this way, which is which is kind of fun. So we'll get to look at that today. Yeah, and again, reminder: this episode, like all of our mechanical breakdowns, best enjoyed by checking out the YouTube page, watching the show on YouTube, the Lab Epstein Hitting Podcast YouTube page. All right, moving forward. Last week on Cross Functionality, Cassie Riley Bosch and I we debunked some hitting misconceptions that have been developed over the years, past and present. And the one point that we touched on, Ep, is technology and how technology now has really been able to debunk a lot of those path, paths, myths, and, and 
now the present day misconceptions as well. And coaches now have the ability with applicable evidence based off that technology to debunk those myths, to debunk those misconceptions and to teach players the correct way to actually hit and kind of filter out those past misconceptions. Yeah, it's always in the eyes of the beholder. It's always how that coach is using that technology. Um, I watched Albert Bullhost do a demo on MLB Network where he took the knob straight down to the ball. Uh, Albert Pujols never looked like that, ever. He was never in that position in real life in a swing. Like you could never, you could look at thousands of videos of his hits, 3,000 of them, right? I mean, you could look at every one of his hits and not one position would look like he looked while demonstrating, but that's what he thought. So that's what, that's what worked for him. Um, so you, you just, you're right. You, you have to be careful. You can say, this is the perfect path that we want to build. And this, this path and these moves uh, by video evidence is kind of how it started, at least with me in the early 2000s. It was like I used video to to kind of watch everyone and how did it work. And then you get some sensors and then you get, you know, kinematic sequencing sensors to see how the body moves in relation to the body. And you have all these things, but it, it's also like, well, how do you get there? You know, what is the, what is the path to get there? So, for instance, you get, you know, the, the guy... Uh, that, that wants you to snap the barrel uh, back and, and launch your swing on one leg, right? Like, if you were to look at that and be like, and look at sensors, right, kinematic sequencing, you'd be like, well, that doesn't work on the, the kinematic sequencing says that that's not wrong. You have to, you know, whatever, have both feet on the ground and yada, yada. But maybe those moves work in teaching a player to actually do it right, even though it's kind of weird when you just see it. Or if you have somebody that says, I want you to swing straight down to the ball. Well, we, we know that nobody really swings straight down to the ball. I mean, sometimes I saw Hank Aaron kind of, his barrel was above the ball at, at, right before contact, and then it was right below the ball or the plane after contact. I'm like, okay. Like, he swung down maybe a little bit or maybe he was level to the ground. But if you put a sensor on, it's like, well, you got to be 5 to 15 degrees, right? You want to be 10 degrees up for the for most of the most of the time. So, again, it's technology is great tools are great but if you don't have a brain maybe ai will just take over and teach everybody how to hit but if you don't have a brain and you don't know how to use that technology to get a player to change whether it's up down in out you know left right whatever it is then it it doesn't matter like for instance like blast i like blast i use blast i don't use it a ton because there's a lot of variables that kind of go into what what you can look at and where the pitch is and where contact was made or whatnot. But Blast marketed their product to Bill. Bill the there's no 11 year olds named Bill. Who am I kidding? To Tanner, you know, uh, the 11 year old kid and the dad, and to say you put this knob on there, and if you swing and it's in the green zone, then you did it right. But, but you can't use that device like that. It doesn't work. The pitch is moving. The ball is moving. So they marketed, basically, and a lot of these other companies marketed their technology to parents who don't know any better. Right. Where they didn't exactly market the technology to coaches who use it, but coaches who know how to use it. Right. Well, which is, that wouldn't be the best marketing tool anyway. I mean, you can try to do that, but... Uh, really, uh, no, I'm not, hey, look, again, this is a capitalistic society, so yeah, right. I'm all for, it's not yeah, a bait and switch. Maybe there's like 10,000 there's 10,000 coaches they can reach and there's 500,000 players they can reach. Like right. they probably did the right business thing. 
But putting that sensor on and listening for a beep and trying to get in range of these different numbers, like I can guarantee you, I've tried to use that device in a team setting where, you know, these people buy it and I get to see all the different readings, but it, it doesn't, it doesn't change anyone. Like you need to, you need to have somebody that knows how to coach you. And sometimes that's your parents too. Tell you, I got a couple hundred online members and it's me and it's dad who may have never played before or mom and the kid. And we make huge progress mechanically, but why do we do that? Not because we have this app that allows us to do it. It's because we're all working together, right? We're all, we're all working together to, to help that kid and that kid's doing the drills, but he's doing the drills the right way. He's not just, um, you know, depending on technology and then the technology, I mean, the blast is cheap, you know, 150 bucks, right? But it's not like every kid's going to have a Rapsodo device for five grand, a hit tracks for 20 grand, a K vest for, you know, a grand. Yeah. That, that's not, that's not really possible. So, um, again, it's, you know, technology is awesome and it proves points and it makes, makes players kind of understand how, how to get better and you can chart that progress. But again, you have to have a, a plan. You have, to, you have to have somebody put together some kind of plan so that you can improve. Well, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, what it takes to be a successful coach in 2023. Technology was certainly part of that. So go ahead back in the archives and take a listen. Um, coming up later in the year, speaking of topics, by the way, we're going to have some good ones coming up here in 2023. We'll be breaking down the swing of Jordan Alvarez, another mechanical breakdown. How to be your own hitting coach. That's a good one. Talking about hitting technique, hitting, and the Major League Baseball first-year player draft, which is coming up. In fact, that's our next episode in the next two weeks. So, again, great topics coming up here in 2023. So stick with us throughout the year for that. Um, last week, we touched on the pitch clock, too. I want to just talk about this really quick. We'll make it very, very quick here. How teams, hitters, have been struggling to make real adjustments with that pitch clock this year. And I have a quote here. I was reading a story from ESPN.com this week talking about pitch clock and the new rules. Elvis Andrus, a veteran, has said this, quote, timing in regards to the pitch clock. Timing. The game is so fast. I know for younger guys it's exciting. They like it. But for me, I love thinking, especially during and at bat. Yeah. Last thing you want to be is rushed. The clock rushes you a lot. You have to get used to it and anticipate it. So he's not saying that he hates the pitch clock, but he's not saying that it was easy to adjust to the pitch clock. We talked about it last week with Juan Soto struggling a bit with the pitch clock. Older veteran guys who a lot of times were always in control of their plate appearances, and that's what's made them successful. But now the playing field in terms of at least the mental game was evened out a little bit with the pitcher and the hitter with that new pitch clock implemented, and hitters have had to kind of speed up their mind a little bit, and they're not as in control or at least they weren't as in control with their plate appearances as they were in previous years. A lot of guys, most guys at this point at the major league level have adjusted and caught up, but obviously Elvis Andres was talking about what I said last week with some of these hitters that have been struggling with the pitch clock. It has to do with the fact that the game is sped up in their mind. I mean, I get it. Like you're late in the game and people are screaming and you just want to take a moment, right? To yeah. clear your brain, to step out of the box take a big breath god forbid we take a deep breath and you know okay what's this guy trying to do the first two pitches were in okay you know i mean yeah this is a game of thinking this is not you know we're just going to line up and run into each other right we're creating strategy as a player you know you have coaches you know it's not like football where they're calling plays for you and then you have to go out there and perform that play i mean you're 
you're anticipating what the defense is doing while you're in the batter's box, essentially. So I, I get it. I, I think I don't know what the right – I don't think anybody knows what the right process is. I think maybe giving the hitter a, a few more seconds to get back in, the, what do they have to make eye contact with the pitcher with eight seconds left? Yeah. Like, how about they have to make eye contact with the pitcher with four seconds left? Like, what, what does he need? Eight seconds. Then the pitcher could just stand there for eight seconds before he goes into his windup. Yeah. How about just be in the box by eight seconds? Or or in the box. Yeah, you're yeah. in the box. Or whatever. But I, I just feel like there are... The eye contact being stupid. ...in the game when, look, if we do seven innings of this stuff, but in the eighth and ninth inning, like, maybe we, we extend it, right, another yeah. five seconds. Yeah. Maybe the yeah. you know because most of the time we're everyone's getting ready they're getting into a rhythm but when you do need those extra few seconds to to reset and get your heart rate to slow down a little bit it'd be nice to have them and then not have strike three called on you before you. I always said it's, it should it should absolutely depend on the situation. If it's a game that's eleven to two in the eighth inning, the umpire should say, "Hey, we're really enforcing the rules." If it's a two two three two type game then you have to be a little bit more lenient. I also don't agree with the new rule that you can only throw over so many times. I think that yeah. absolutely gives the advantage. There is unquestionably no doubt that it gives the advantage to the running team. I understand you want to get more stolen bases, but the bags are bigger now. I think the whole idea of trying to control the run game or produce more stolen bases to me is sort of messing with the core of the game. But again, what do I know? Yeah. I'm for the game being quicker. I like the pitch clock in certain instances, but I has to. I think the rules have to be changed a little bit, tweaked in the off season that better formats the actual core of the baseball game. Yeah, right. That's the right. point of the new rules. I mean, football when they implement new rules, they're not messing with the actual core of the game. They're not going to stretch the first down marker to first and twelve, first and fifteen. Right. It's right. first and ten. That's what it is. That's the core of the game. And I think that baseball, in some instances with these new rules, they've sort of stretched the core of what the actual game is. And players have struggled, both hitters and pitchers, by the way, I've noticed, have struggled to kind of adjust. So we'll see what happens in the future. But. We'll see what I think it's a work in progress, but I definitely think it's it sped things up. I mean, sometimes it drives me crazy when someone's sitting there taking off their batting gloves and, you know, like it gets a little bit crazy and extreme. But if you're just sitting out and taking a breath, because the game's on the line and then there's runners at second and third and there's two outs and you got a couple strikes on you. Yeah. Have a little feel, but I don't, I think you do have to draw a line because then what's the other coaching that I got going to say, Hey, the pitch clock ran out. Why didn't you call it? Right. That should have been strike three. And then you have a different argument. Yeah. Albeit a lame one. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And these young, I'll tell you, these younger umpires, though, now in across Major League Baseball, they they love calling these pitch clock violations. I understand they have a sensor on their wrist that 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 tells them, hey, pitch clock violation. But they they jump right out, take that mask off, and they signal, hey, pitch clock, pitch clock. They love it. Those yeah, they also like uh, overturning plays at home plate. Man, they do. Yeah, actually, the umpires, the on-field umpires, are calling it great. It's the review guys that are in the you know the booth in New York that are nitpicking everything in in, in slow motion instead of real time and yeah. and that's a mess now too. That cost the Rangers a game. I don't know if it cost was that in the was it in the San Diego game? Same thing happened. I don't know if that cost them the game if that run, but the one in Texas was pretty bad. Like that was the yeah. go ahead run in the eighth inning or something. Yeah. 
All right. Well, moving on here, let's get into Paul Goldschmidt. You ready to go with the mechanical breakdown? A couple of things that I noticed about him. He's got a good swing plane, a little bit steep, stays on plane though for a long time. I would love to know what his attack angle is. That's the first point with Paul Goldschmidt. Mm -hmm. Number two, and this is a, a misconception coaches might point to and use Paul Goldschmidt as an example if they're in the camp of, hey, get your foot down early. Paul Goldschmidt mm -hmm. does get his foot down early, but he's mm -hmm. still able to get into that back hip, into that back glute and gain the proper torque that he needs to get the power that he's able to generate. So let's talk about those two things first, his swing plane, and then let's break and bust that myth of how he gets the foot down, quote-unquote, gets the foot down. Okay, so here's a view of Goldie from the front. And the one on the right, you know, Jim, you had mentioned, I wonder what his attack angle is. This one here in the blue, you can see he hits super deep in the zone. This was only a six-degree attack angle. So they had one of the bat tracers on that. And then this one on the left was an off-speed pitch. I believe it was like a hanging slider um, at around 80, 80-something miles an hour. And you can see he swung up more. I, I believe this one was, I don't know, but this was probably closer to 12 or 15 degrees. So now one he hit deep in the zone, one he hit out in front of the zone. So that's why I always, when I'm working with players, we're trying to get our attack angle somewhere in the – 5 to 15. 5 if we're late, 15 if we're early. It's never the same. You can't be like 5 the whole way through, right? It's always kind of working up to your follow-through. So if we just take a look here, we can see he's really far away from the plate. Like, where do you stand from the plate? Here's the inside corner. I mean, I don't know how many amateur players I work with. There's a lot more out there than I work with that stand almost on the white batter's box line right he is the plate 17 inches so there's 17 inches there he's like 22 inches away from the plate that's really far so where are his hands when he hits every single pitch they're pretty far away from the plate right his hands are not in front of his body at all on either of these swings i mean you would kind of expect that on an outside pitch but on a pitch down the middle which both of these are he's covering the middle of the zone and his hands are way out away from his body that's him and you know what that's okay <laughs> it works for him so um, as we go through here I'm going to just clear some of these marks okay I gotta zoom back in so if we look at this this one on the left we're going to be able to see him from the side here in a second okay so we're going to He's going to run around the bases. Everybody loves running around the bases. Isn't that fun? Okay, and then I'm going to center him. So as Jim mentioned, he is a guy that strides early to his toe. So let's, you know, if we look here, um, well, unfortunately, we didn't have a long enough clip, but he steps early and then he stops and then he just drops his front heel. And as he drops his heel, watch his hands. Again, we're looking on the left side here. Um, watch his hands. His back knee starts to go, but look at his front arm. Okay, so if if I were seeing this, there might be less than, I don't know, 3% of Major League Baseball players that have a front arm that smashes against the chest. Okay? Again, look at, I mean, that's right up against his chest. This would be considered kind of an arm bar. An arm bar is not bad if it's back here. Okay? But if you start to rotate and then the bicep smashes against your chest, that's not a good, like, that's not a good move. Um, he gets away with it. Like, he is a special guy. And then as he continues forward, now he's trying to make up space and get his hands there. 
okay he's trying to get his hands back out in front but he's fighting it and notice how straight his front arm is so you know most people would see that and be like oh that's that's not a good he does it on every swing okay why do you think he stands so far the, away from the plate because he's not good at keeping his hands close to his body this move here with his left arm pushes his hands away from his body so what does he do he stands a little bit further from the plate okay job well done Mr. Goldschmidt I'm trying to remember Ted Williams uh, broke his I believe it was his throwing his right arm so his lead arm Ted Williams broke his lead arm in, in the all-star game I think it was the all-star game 1951 50 something like that I don't know he ran into the fence broke his arm and when he got back he said he started when he re after he was done with rehab he started pulling everything foul because he was straightening his front arm more than he did earlier in his career before he broke his arm. So what did he do? He moved off the plate and closed his stance a little bit, and then he was able to keep the pitch fair. Okay, That's what he figured out to do. Um, and Goldie kind of has that same move, so he's just a little bit farther away from the plate. If you look at this home run he hit, yes, it was an off-speed pitch. Look how early he was. I mean, he hits this ball way out in front of his front. Look how far in front of his hands the barrel is. Okay? But notice how there's zero wrist roll going on. See how quiet his hands are as he finishes. See how his forearms stay quiet. He doesn't turn his right forearm over his left forearm. I mean, he's borderline fooled. If you were to see this swing, you're like, oh, he was fooled on that? I saw three swings that looked exactly like this. Every breaking ball he hits is down in the zone. It's slow, and he's able to hit it uh, you know, at his front foot. If we try to put an attack angle on this again it's not going to be perfect but i'm going through his barrel here you know maybe from there to there he's probably swinging it you know 13 to 15 degrees up on this breaking pitch where if we look here on the right in the blue jersey watch as he comes through notice how late he is but he delivers the barrel to the inside and then he shoots that home run this was like straight away right field so he was totally late but notice how his barrel never got underneath this i don't know if you guys follow me on twitter right at epstein hitting but i did a video there was a kid from um, florida that was swinging or i'm sorry from tennessee that was swinging under a lot of fastballs and in this position here his barrel was like this it was way down here and then as he came through he tried to flip his barrel back up where if you see goldie if i draw this line this is his vertical bat angle well let me put a should be able to put a number on that Okay, his vertical, we know his attack angle was 6, his vertical bat angle was 23, but notice how his barrel like kind of comes on that same line as I rewind him. See how his barrel is just barely underneath that? And then as he finishes, see how his barrel stays kind of right on that line? That's the key. That's the key because he can hit it there, or if he was early, he could have hit it here. But notice how his barrel is still on that same line. Okay, that's a sign of a good hitter. So, you know, what does he do well? He knows what works well for him. He's got to be off the plate because of his lead arm and how straight it is. Okay? No, not a big deal. It's not like he, he, you know, he may bar his front arm, but he doesn't cast the bat. The bat stays pretty close to his back shoulder. Okay? This angle, again, if we look, you know, what is casting, we try to keep this angle between his forearm and his bat, right? We try to keep that 90 degrees as long as we can. Okay, he's probably, that wasn't a very good line I drew, but he's probably about 100 degrees on this pitch. Okay, some guys are even tighter, right? Their bat's like this, and then the forearm is like this. So there's really not a big cast going on, even though he's straightening his front arm. It's just how he does it. 
right? It's it's how he does it. So his barrel gets to the plane. More importantly, it's just an adjustable plane. Like sometimes he drops underneath, and sometimes this one on the right. So before when we when I was telling you he was struggling in in whatever the playoffs of twenty one, he was like on this pitch that he hits out of the park in the blue uniform, his hands were like up here, and his barrel was like underneath it. So he had his hands too high, and his bat vertical angle was dropping underneath everything. And that's when he struggled. So he has found a way to get his hands lower, essentially, and the barrel higher. Okay, And when you do that, when you get your hands a little bit lower and the barrel a little bit higher, the barrel's still below the hands, people. Okay, But, but it's not as great. Then he has a vertical bat angle in the 20s instead of one in the 40s. And when he's in the 40s, he was swinging under everything. And he was really frustrated. And he wasn't the Goldie that most people remember. So I'm not sure what caused that or I'm not sure what got him out of that. But he's obviously a uh, very talented, talented hitter that does tend to swing up a little bit more, but not too much. Okay, If he's going to be exploited, he's going to be exploited with fastballs, and he's going to be a little bit late. And that's why I wanted to put this one here in the blue, because when we're late and we have a barrel plane issue, we miss this ball. I mean, he hits it really deep in the zone. We can't really see it from this angle, but he, I'm telling you, he hits this ball between the right field line and the right fielder. Okay, so this was not a high judge uh, fly ball into the bullpen. This was a low line drive into the seats that barely got out because it was hit so low. So when you can let the ball get that deep, travel that deep, and not swing under it, that is the sign of somebody that's going to find a lot of barrels. I work this drill all the time with players. We're going to be late. I usually throw it further outside. We throw it on the outside part of the plate. I tell them they got to make contact behind their front foot. And if they pop it up, they did it wrong. Okay, and that teaches you. Notice how he's coming into this pitch, right? In this position, is his barrel above the ball or below the ball? It's above the ball, okay? If we come in one more, where's his barrel? Slightly above the ball. Okay, and then right at contact, boom, it gets to the ball, to the bottom half of the ball. And that's how you find a lot of barrels and hit above 300 in the major leagues. Really, really important. All right, well, be sure to follow us on social media at Jim Tara at Epstein Hitting. Email us your questions, Podcast 21 at gmail.com. In a couple of weeks, we'll be discussing hitters and preparing for the Major League Baseball draft, how offensive players can do such. So stay tuned for that. We will talk to you in a couple of weeks. Thank you for listening and watching, and we will talk to you in just a couple of weeks. Have a great July 4th. Happy birthday, America. Take care.